for the Athletic Podcast Network. I'm Kate Scott. Welcome to the update. On today's show, six years after the 49ers fell to the Seahawks in Seattle, the red and gold are back where they belong, a win away from the Super Bowl. With the help of Niners beat writer David Lombardi, we dive into Sunday's NFC Championship against the Packers, discuss Richard Sherman's return to vintage Sherm form, and learn how Jimmy Garoppolo's past set him up for the success he and the Niners have experienced this season. It's Friday, January 17th. Well, David, with almost a week now to think about it, what impressed you most uh, about the way that the 49ers dispatched the Vikings in the divisional round last Saturday? Well, the 49ers, they played some historic defense through the first 10 or 11, maybe 12 weeks of the season. And then they hit that December stretch where attrition took over and they reverted to a mediocre defense, maybe a little bit above average, but nothing special in December throughout those final four or five games. What impressed me about the divisional round against the Vikings is that the 49ers returned to that historic level of play. And by that, I mean, you look at some of the numbers and they're just stupid. I mean, it's you know, you could say staggering, you could say unprecedented, but for example, the 49ers, when they played Aaron Rodgers and they held him to his worst career game, as far as efficiency went, every single time that Aaron Rodgers dropped back to pass, he only averaged a 1.7 yard gain. If you include the sacks yeah. and everything there, Wild. Kirk Cousins with the Vikings from drive number three up until garbage time. So after Akella Witherspoon was replaced by Emmanuel Mosley, was averaging negative yardage per drop back. So the Vikings would have been better off just taking a snap and spiking the ball on every single down instead of actually dropping Kirk Cousins back to pass. And I don't think we've ever seen that in a playoff game before, especially maybe in the wild card round when you have an overmatched team, but in the divisional round with a quarterback who, uh, according to most of the metrics, was a top eight, top nine guy in the league who's being paid, what, $30 million a year guaranteed. For them to just overwhelm that Minnesota line in that way, to make his passing actually a net negative on every single down, um, that that was awesome. So that that's what stood out to me. Well, and you teased the now opponents for the 49ers this week, Aaron Rodgers and the Packers, dispatching the Seahawks. You and I, we talked before we came on today, both a little bit surprised by the result, wondering what you were keeping your eye on, though, in that one as it was going on last week. Well, it's tough because the opponents are always different, and I think the 49ers are exceptional this year with how powerful their defense is. So when you watch Aaron Rodgers play against the Seattle Seahawks, it's he's playing, what, the number 20-something, a very mediocre defense compared to Aaron Rodgers against the 49ers. Well, that was a career low that we saw in November. So what I really wanted to see is, is how fresh guys looked, right, in that game. And, and I thought that there was a little bit of a fountain of youth for Aaron Rodgers at a few moments in that game. He did flick a few of those passes. The one to seal the game to Jimmy Graham was very interesting to me because that was a vintage Aaron Rodgers throw. The blitz is coming. You think you've got him. But, you know, he's not the most athletic guy, but he but he's able to get that ball out and accurate. Rodgers throws, passes, caught Jimmy Graham. First down. He put that one on the money, and that's the only way that the Packers are going to have a chance in this game is if Aaron Rodgers turns back the clock a few years and is able to beat the 49ers' pass rush with, I don't want to say Houdini acts because that belongs to Russell Wilson, but with vintage Aaron Rodgers acts. And I, I thought he did some of that this past week, 
which um, makes me think that maybe uh, he can keep this game a little bit closer than the first time around, but it's going to take a lot of that to make this game actually close. Yeah, so you talked about his performance in their first meeting in November, which went to the 49ers 37-8 to at Levi's on Sunday Night Football. What about the rest of the Packers team? What allowed, for maybe fans who don't recall the game other than the score, what else stood out to you about that game on, on both sides of the ball? Well, Green Bay, they're similar to Seattle, and the, the defense is not great, but they're better than Seattle, and this is why they ultimately won the game last Sunday. They're better at the edge rushing spots, and those are the two most important positions on any NFL defense. That's why the edge rushers make all the money. That's why Khalil Mack was such a you know coveted guy and, and why the Chicago Bears gave him that huge contract. And that's why the 49ers have, have turned it around defensively this year. They added both Nick Bosa and D. Ford, Everything else is the same. Everything else has remained constant on the defense, and it's turbocharged to the next level. Well, the Packers, the personnel isn't great across the board except for at the two edge-rushing spots. That's Zadarius Smith and Preston Smith. The first time that the 49ers played the Packers, you'll remember the 49ers' offense got off to a slow start in that game. And they didn't have Joe Staley. He was still hurt. And Mike McGlinchey was, I think, still a little bit rusty in that game. But what the Packers did with both Sedarius and Preston Smith is that they terrorized left tackle, and Justin School started that game. For the 49ers offense, things turned around when they benched Justin School and they put Dan Brunskill in at left tackle. From that point on, they just stymied the Packers. That edge rush wasn't hitting home. That's when George Kittle started making his big catches. He had a 60-yard touchdown in that game. Here's Garoppolo, going to fake and boot left. He has Richie James Jr. there. Going to throw a deep Got shot. It. Wide open, George Kittle. 20, 10, 5. He is back. Touchdown! San Francisco! What a play design. How good does that feel? Feels great, baby, George Kittle. And the 49ers basically found the one strength of the Packers' defense. They were able to neutralize it. From that point on, it was an awesome, balanced offensive effort, and they won 37-8. to So the question now is, will you know Joe Staley's return to the lineup? He's been playing really well. He's going to be available for this game coming up on Sunday. Will that make the 49ers even stronger than they were after they moved to Dan Brunskill in the first matchup. Because I think if you take away the edge rushers of the Packers, there's not much left. It's a very mediocre defense. So that's where ground zero of this fight is going to be. Okay, what are your other keys to victory on Sunday? The line of scrimmage is is going to be everything. So that's the case in any football game, but especially this one, because you, you have to replicate or at least partly replicate, if you're the 49ers defense, what you did to the Packers in November. If you do that, I think... Almost everything else, you know, just kind of goes out the window because it has such a nice domino effect. You don't have to cover anybody downfield. I mean, you want to talk about an awesome stat last time. Devontae Adams, who's, I think, containing him is one of the keys, right? We'll, we'll put that in here. Well, he's a great receiver. He had 43 receiving yards, yet he had 44 yards after the catch. He had more yards after the catch than receiving yards. That means he did not catch a single pass beyond the line of scrimmage in the first game. That means that the 49ers pass rush so thoroughly overwhelmed Green Bay's line of scrimmage, they're they're blocking up front, that the Packers just gave up on throwing the ball downfield. They decided we're just going to get Aaron Rodgers in the shotgun, snap, quick throw, Devontae Adams catches it behind the line of scrimmage, runs forward. He only got 43 yards all game. So 
you don't have to have any other keys if you execute that first one if you're the 49ers defense. Now, if they somehow block better in this game, and it's possible they do, maybe they'll be more mentally ready. They did have some right tackle issues last game. In that case, then you have to figure out how to cover Devontae Adams because he's their only real legitimate receiver. Mm, read my mind, David. Wanted to talk about East Palo Alto's own Fresno State product, go dogs, Devontae Adams. Eight catches, 160 yards in the win over Seattle. So how do the Niners, if the pass rush isn't as exceptional as it was in November, how do they keep Adams from going off like he did last week at Lambeau this Sunday at Levi's? For that, let's go back to 2018 when the 49ers played the Packers at Lambeau Field before they had this pass rush. It's This is a cool matchup to dissect because it's like we have these case studies from before where we could see, oh, here's what the 49ers might do if this doesn't turn out the way that it did in November. And boom, in 2018, 49ers didn't have edge rushers yet. So they actually played the Packers well in that game at Lambeau. It was a Monday night game. C.J. Beathard was the starting quarterback because Jimmy was hurt at the time. And they shut Aaron Rodgers down for... I want to say about three quarters of the game. He came out on fire, scored a couple touchdowns, but then they made adjustments and were throwing a ton of exotic blitzes to make up for not having that edge rush through the middle of the game. And then Aaron Rodgers finally figured it out at the end of the game, drove the Packers to victory. Aaron Rodgers, game on the line, wants it all, and he's got Adams, and the Packers are back in business. Showing A-gap pressure, and they come with it. Here come the Niners, and there goes Rodgers to the end zone, and Adams gets it for the touchdown. Rodgers to the other side, and he does it. My, oh, my, Equinemius St. Brown. Waiting for his chance. Under 10 to play. Rodgers wants more, and he gets it to Vontae Adams. So it was an up-and-down game. But what I learned throughout that game is that the 49ers were able to fake their way through covering Devontae Adams for at least a few possessions. You can't do it all game, which is why they went out and got Nick Bosa and D. Ford. You're going to need those guys to win a championship. But for the few possessions that maybe they don't get home on Sunday, you might see Richard Sherman cover Devontae Adams in man. And that's what they did in 2018. Uh, It was more than one possession, and it actually worked. Now, there was a big flag on Sherman for holding, but that was a very disputed flag in that game. But he was following Devontae Adams around, and we've seen more man coverage down the stretch of this season from this cover three defensive scheme than we've seen, I think, in any uh, iteration of it. You go back to Seattle, you see it run in Jacksonville, all these teams. 49ers starting to run some, some man coverage with these corners. And Richard Sherman, he picked off Kirk Cousins while he was guarding Adam Thielen and Mann on last Sunday. So it's one of those where there's a stereotype about this defense. Oh, they just play zone and one corner sticks on one side. Devontae Adams will just pick on Mosley or Witherspoon or whoever's on the other side. I don't think that's going to be the case. If that starts happening, you might see Sherman start trailing him. Okay, so let's shift gears. Talk about Grandpa Sherm, the leader of the Niners' secondary. Is it Uncle Sherm? (laughs) Uncle Sherm. Okay. (laughs) He gets a little upset about even Uncle, so I don't know about Grandpa. Then I will just go with Sherm because he had, as you mentioned, that big interception in the second half last weekend that put the Niners in control for good. You've covered him, David, since his days at Stanford. Said afterwards that that was vintage Sherm in your post-game report. What does that mean? That means he's going to be the guy that you hate playing for the other team but love playing for your team. That's the definition of vintage Richard Sherman. I mean, if you want to boil it down to its simplest terms, it's black or white. There is no middle ground. You either hate his guts or 
you want to go to war with this guy, and it just depends on what colors he's wearing. And now he's wearing the red and gold for the 49ers. Now, Sunday is going to be January 19th. January 19th is the exact six-year anniversary of the NFC title game where the 49ers hated Richard Sherman, where he tipped the Colin Kaepernick pass. Clock running with 30 seconds. Kaepernick takes the shotgun snap. Kaepernick looking, throws one to the near side for Crabtree. He leaps. It's batted up and intercepted. Intercepted in the end zone by Seattle. Richard Sherman denies the 49ers. There's a funny story about that, too. Sherman will talk about that. And he wasn't targeted all game until that play. And it was it was really out of character for the 49ers to go to Crabtree on that play because Quentin Patton was open in the flat. If you looked at the clock management scenario there, it didn't even make sense to go for the end zone on that play because Seattle would have gotten the ball back with like a minute left. Mm-hmm. would have made more sense to be methodical, which the 49ers were doing the whole drive. And Sherman will tell you, it was just arrogance on the 49ers' part. He's convinced that the 49ers were letting a little bit of the hubris there take over, and they wanted to target and beat him. They not only wanted to win, but they wanted to take him out. And I think that, you know, it's, it's interesting to think about that happening exactly six years ago to the day on January 19th, and then realize that now Sherman, the guy who was at the center of, the, of that drama, you know, all the, the, the pride and you know, all the trash talking between him and Crabtree. Now, and he crushed the 49ers. Now he's wearing the 49ers colors. And he's going to be the guy that everybody loves if he can bring it to the Super Bowl for them. All right. Well, we talked Niners defense. Got to talk a bit about the phenomenal in-depth feature that you wrote on Niners quarterback Jimmy Garoppolo before he won his first career playoff start last weekend. What really jumped out to me about the story, David, was his patience and his persistence. Because... He didn't just have to wait behind Brady in New England. He had to wait and prove his worth at every level, dating all the way back to high school. So wondering how you think that shaped Jimmy into the guy that we're seeing out there in the red and gold today. I think that to get to the essence and core of any athlete, and especially Jimmy Garoppolo, because some of the reasons that you just mentioned, you have to go back to the origin story. You know, those are the formative years. And One of his good friends from Eastern Illinois had the quote, and I used it at the end, was, it was, quote, he's been through the fire. I mean, it was a disaster. I mean, it was a fire. It was the biggest fire I've ever seen. And he went in, and he was excited. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, mean, he was just like, he was getting hit. I mean, he was getting hit every other play after the throw, whatever. He, you know, hand the ball off, do a fake boot out. He'd get hit there, too. I mean, he was getting hit left and right, but he loved it. He just, he wanted to play. He's a guy that, I knew it was only a matter of time, but him sitting behind Tom was probably had to be driving me nuts because he just wants to be out there and playing. He has to be out there. I couldn't imagine his thoughts when he had to sit behind Tom all those years. He was itching to play bad. And I thought that was perfect heading up and to not only summarize the piece, but also heading into the playoffs. He's already been there. And, you know, everybody does talk about New England and, and waiting, but it, it was about what happened before then. And, you know, what stood out to me about Garoppolo is that you talk about his family, his dad's an electrician, a very blue-collar, middle-class, suburban Chicago upbringing. But there's also the whole aspect of him playing linebacker, which I, I think is awesome. And I think we saw last Sunday when he was a lead blocker <laughs> on oh, that, that one play, and he yeah. flattened Anthony Barr, who's, who's yeah. quite a bit bigger than him. I think Anthony Barr weighs 255 pounds, but not only was Jimmy Garoppolo waiting his turn to be quarterback, 
he was playing linebacker while he was waiting his turn. So he shows up on campus at Rolling Meadows High School. It's in Arlington Heights. It's over by O'Hare Airport in Chicago. And he doesn't actually want to play quarterback. It's not in the forefront of his mind because he's not the kind of guy that wanted to draw the attention to him. You know, some people want to go out of their way to be quarterback, I think, for maybe not the most team-oriented reasons, and maybe that's a lot of quarterbacks. I'm not sure. We have to study that a little bit more extensively. But for Garoppolo, that certainly wasn't the case. And he shows up, and they only discover him to have a good arm, a good arm in football because he'd already been pitching in baseball. They knew that. But they they thought he was going to be like an athlete running around, playing different positions on offense. He's fielding punts at a freshman football practice, and he starts firing the ball back, and he's throwing it further than the guys were kicking it. I was pretty much the offensive coach, and the other freshman coach was the defensive coach. We had kind of talked already about like how we were going to use Jimmy, and the plan kind of was, all right, we'll kind of use him as an athlete where he can be a running back, um, tight end, you know, receiver. We can kind of move him around in different spots. So that was the plan. So in particular, we were having a punting-like tryout kind of a thing, seeing who could kick. And, of course, Jimmy could do that too, but we had him down at the time. I remember he was, like, fielding punts. Like, he was just kind of shagging them. And when he was doing that, he threw a couple back. And we already knew he could throw. But he started making some throws back to, like, where the punters were. Maybe, like, throwing it back to me or the other coach. And the other freshman coach looked at me, and he's like, do you see Jimmy throw? Like, I think he should be our quarterback. So they discover him by accident. And then he plays the next week, and he looks good. But, you know, it's, it's a freshman football team, and they, he's such a good athlete. They need him on varsity the next year. So they already have a quarterback. He's playing linebacker. You have this combination of, oh, my God, this guy's a talent, yet this guy is not standing up and yelling that I want to be the quarterback. He'd rather go and hit people because he idolized his older brother who was a linebacker. And you combine both of those two things, and you have what I call the blue-collar quarterback, Yet he still has that charisma. I mean, he's still a good-looking, you know, the good-looking guy who's the stereotypical quarterback, at least when you see him. But you combine that with the realness and the blue-collar aspect, and that creates the legend of Jimmy G. I think it's a multi-layered, multi-faceted analysis that starts back in high school, maybe even before then. Yeah, if you haven't read that piece yet, you got to get to it right now. We have a link to it in the description notes of our podcast today. And now, David, just 10 years after graduating from high school, which blows my mind, Jimmy's going to start his first conference title game on Sunday. What do you expect to see from Jimmy G? It's going to be really interesting because you look at this 49ers team and there's so many parallels to the 1981 team. I mean, we could start with the fact that one of their biggest wins came by a score of 26 to 21, and there was a goal line stop by number 57, Dre Greenlaw this year, Dan Buns back in 1981, third-year head coaches, So you have uh, Bill Walsh back in 1981, Kyle Shanahan here. The kicker for me is that Shanahan was born in the year that Bill Walsh took over as 49ers coach in in 1979. So you have all these things, 13-3, and number one seed, quarterbacks who went to school in the Midwest. And that's where, you know, I'm getting to Garoppolo here. People forget that Joe Montana threw three interceptions in his first conference title game. For much of that game, he didn't look good. And then he threw one of the most famous passes in NFL history to Dwight Clark after leading one of the most famous drives in NFL history. Montana rolling out the right, looking toward the end zone, throwing under pressure, throws his pass, caught by Clark! Clark got a touchdown! Dwight Clark has it! It's a touchdown for the 49ers! 
I bring that up because this season has been following a lot of that same script. In that year, the 49ers won by a couple possessions against the New York Giants in the divisional round. They also blew out the Cowboys earlier that year, but then it was close because of all the turnovers again. And the reason I bring that up is I, I wouldn't be surprised to see anything at this point. Either the 49ers start writing their own script, and I think they're clearly better than the Packers. Jimmy Garoppolo goes out, throws four touchdowns, and they just stomp them. You know, that can happen. Or this will continue to follow that old script, and we may see some struggles, but I think that ultimately when the game is on the line, you can count on him to come through. Just everything that we know about him, everything that we know about this team, there's nothing suggesting that he won't come through if it comes to that. And that's all I have to say. The beauty of it is I don't know which of those two directions it will go because this is still unwritten, but something tells me it's going to be a little bit closer just for weird reasons. And in that case, we may get to see Jimmy Garoppolo under pressure in a huge moment, which would be very evocative of some legendary moments in this franchise's history. On that note, can't wait for Sunday. David, thanks so much for the time. Thank you. So Jimmy G, as David and I discussed, just two days away from starting his first career conference championship game. For Richard Sherman, meanwhile, Sunday will mark the third NFC title game start and 14th overall playoff start of his career. In those 13 playoff games already under his belt, Sherm's allowed just one postseason touchdown pass. For access to David's fantastic coverage of the 49ers, just click the link in the description notes of today's podcast. Coming up in the next few weeks here on The Update. We'll talk Super Bowl 54, which, fingers crossed, means we'll be talking a whole lot more Niners. Knock on wood. We'll get into the growing number of girls competing for the Junior Sharks in San Jose. And on our next show, Hannah Gordon was hired as the Director of Legal Affairs for the 49ers back in 2011. In the nine years since, Gordon's become the organization's Chief Administrative Officer, overseeing everything from public affairs and risk management to community relations and the extremely successful 49ers Foundation. Why she's taken on all the added responsibility and why giving back matters so much to the Bay Area native. That's your update for today. Thanks to KNBR for the highlight sound. If you're enjoying the pod, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, review, and spread the word. And if you want to just keep listening, that's cool too. For Brian and Tanika, all of us here at The Athletic, I'm Kate Scott. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the weekend. Go Niners. We'll talk to you again on Monday.